0: Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs Podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing this week? Good morning, Liam. Good. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, you might have just noticed we said good morning there. So I think this is our first episode of the TDD uh, podcast, the T Driven Devs podcast. First ever. First.
1: Yeah. So there's a reason that you said good morning and that we're the T Driven Devs today. And that's because we have a guest, Nick Ellsmore. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Morning, Nick. Hey, Liam. Nick has kindly made some time to speak with us and and we're chatting with him this morning. Normally, Nick, we record in the evenings and we normally have a beer, so we're, we're having tea today.
2: To be fair, I did offer everyone the excuse that it's five o'clock somewhere, but uh, D-Driven Devs works for me too.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll take you up on that next time, especially over the next few weeks when we've all got time off over the holidays. So Nick, I'll get you to uh, introduce yourself. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are?
2: Yeah, sure. So my background, I've been in cybersecurity now for 24 years, which in cybersecurity terms is obviously a pretty long time. Started being computer security, then became IT security, then became information security. And then finally, we landed on cybersecurity because we thought that sounded way cooler. (laughs) I'm still sort of one foot in, one foot out on whether cybersecurity does, in fact, Sound better, but I, I started my first cybersecurity company in the year 2000, which grew. It uh, was a consulting firm, grew to become the biggest in Sydney. We ultimately sold that company after a, a couple of mergers and acquisitions to BAE Systems in 2010. Then I started uh, another cybersecurity company in 2015 called Hyvent, and we built that up and sold that to Trustwave at the end of 2018. And I just finished there a couple of months ago, and I'm currently on a career break, trying to figure out what to do next. But basically, my whole career career has been in in cybersecurity advising governments, businesses, a lot of work in financial services, work countries around the world, worked on a bunch of different national level cybersecurity strategies for countries that are not
1: Australia. And yeah, just had a A pretty interesting career, I like to think. That does sound pretty cool. There's no question that you got the credentials there. So in case it isn't obvious, we're going to talk today about cybersecurity. Before we get into that, I I just want to wrap up a little bit just to cap off our last episode, Mm. because our last episode was quite interesting. I don't know if you caught it, Nick, but we were talking about all of the drama and shenanigans with Sam Altman over at uh, OpenAI. Were you following all that?
2: Look, I, I, I did lose maybe one night's sleep worrying about whether AGI was going to end human existence, but um, I'm, I'm back on track.
1: Okay. Well, that's good. The, the The thing that I think that's interesting about this is when we recorded this episode a week and a half ago, the drama was literally unfolding while we were recording. And we were
0: making jokes that it was going to change by the time we finished recording.
1: Yeah, and of course it did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and the next day it kicked off. And then by by the time, you know, less than a week had gone by, it all changed again. And the thing that I think is really interesting about this is uh, if you look at the way that storytelling is done in television at the moment, right, We're all we're all used to serialized storytelling you know, where we have these long arcs that go multiple episodes or mm. seasons or what have you. Because that's just kind of the way it is. But before 2000s or late 90s, other than soap operas, television used to be episodic, right? Before yep. that, uh, you'd have episodic television. And what would happen is you'd have all this drama and then at the end of the episode, everything would reset and go back to the status quo ready for the next episode. I really feel like that's what's actually happened here. I feel like there's a 90s TV drama about the open AI leadership and we're all just caught up in some episodes, all this drama, and now it's gone back to the end and it's reset and it's just back to the status quo, ready for the next episode.
0: I don't know if it's finished yet. Let's see what this next episode unfolds.
1: Yeah. Oh, anyway, so Nick, the reason that we've asked you to come on, and again, I'm super grateful for you giving up some time this morning to join us to talk about this, is I, I saw a couple of posts that you made on LinkedIn about the uh, newly announced Australian cybersecurity strategy for 2023 to 2030. And there was a couple of posts that you made, and I was going to comment on them, but and there was a couple of things that, that I wanted to talk about and ask you, and I thought... Why not ask you to join us today to start off with? And, I, and I'm sure you've got a lot that you would like to say about this, but I wonder if you can start off by just summarizing your thoughts, you know, in, in relation to those those posts that you made.
0: Yeah.
2: So the interesting thing with it is those posts have been misconstrued in in a lot of places as, as me saying that the strategy is wrong or the strategy is flawed or the strategy is just a rehash of, of a past strategy. And that's that's not what I'm saying. I actually think this is, this is the best strategy that we have had in Australia at a national level in terms of how we're going to go about cybersecurity. The point that I would make, though, is when the 2020 strategy was released, that was also the best strategy that we had for cybersecurity in Australia at the time. And I can promise you that, if we release a new strategy in 2025 or 2026 it will be the best strategy that we have yeah. because it's obviously timely it's you know it's relevant to the problems we have right now and it's like the amount of work that goes into building one of these documents is pretty staggering You know, it it took 15 months, there are hundreds of submissions, there's industry engagement, there's just an enormous amount of work. So you have to try really, really hard to not come out of that with a strategy that is good, Mm -hmm. you know, that is is sensible, that is workable. The comments that I was making and that I stand by is no one is more secure today than they were yesterday because we've released Mm. this new strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that you know the the victory lap that a lot of the industry is doing about the brilliance of this strategy is just a little bit preemptive. Uh, i think we need to wait for actual initiatives to roll out for actual impact to be achieved because historically that's where we've struggled you know a lot of the things that are in the strategy we have tried to fix before and the programs have failed and and Mm -hmm. so ultimately the problem we have is in rolling this stuff mm. out rather than actually setting a beautiful strategy and this is a a really really good
1: strategy it's interesting you say that because uh, my thoughts on it when i read it were similar and there's a quote that i heard during a talk once and this quote was in relation to i think it was actually in relation to art but i found that this is the most pertinent quote i've ever heard in relation to strategy and i love it this quote is vision without execution is hallucination <laughs> Nice. So I've read through this document and, and I certainly haven't read it or understood it anywhere near as thoroughly as you have. But I've read through it and, and tried to get what I can from it. And it strikes me that it is leaning more towards being a vision than a strategy. Um, so there are initiatives that they've essentially name dropped, but there's no kind of operational imperatives in there. There's no implementation guidelines. There's, these things may be somewhere else. But for me, that was one of the big things. There was two major things that struck me. Was One of them was that You know, there's a lot of talk basically about these things that we want to do. And these are the things that we want to achieve, but very little in the way of this is how we're going to do it.
2: Yeah. And a a lot of what is in there is objectively worthwhile. You know, we we need to improve the security of small businesses. No one's going to disagree with that. You know, we we need to improve the security of critical infrastructure. Yes, no one's going to disagree with, with these initiatives, but how you do that is, you know, is, is a really, really challenging and gnarly problem, um, particularly mm. the small business one. And I also like to say, I'm, I'm not coming at this from a position of saying, I have the answers. I know how to solve this. And you know, the, the problem is that you're not using my solution. Mm. <laughs> in fact, it's, it's, it's almost completely the contrary, which is I've personally been involved in projects that have attempted to deliver this in the past. You know, we did video series for small business through one of the government programs. We built a tool for the Entrepreneurs Program for small business to do health checks, which is exactly what they're talking about here. We've written papers for what was called the IT Security Expert Advisory Group, which was trying to deal with information sharing and a lot of things. We wrote papers around SCADA Security for the Trusted Information Sharing Network, another government body that was, that was set up at the time. We've done all of these things to try to address some of the problems that have been identified here and they didn't work. I don't know why they didn't work. And I think if, if I had one you know, magic wand that I would wave, it would be to say that every strategy document like this should have a mandatory section at the start that has an independent review of the last strategy, what was done, what was abandoned, what worked, what didn't work and why. Because without that, we're just firehosing money in random directions without knowing if it's, we're not learning from what we've done in the past.
1: Mm. I often find, you know, not just with regard to um, cybersecurity strategy, but um, strategy in general, I often see some strategic initiatives get identified and approved and then executed poorly. And then people come back to them when it's time to review the strategy three years later and say, that didn't work. Mm. That's That's not a good initiative when it's actually a, a great initiative, it just needed to be executed properly. And a lot of things getting cut, sadly, because could, could of that kind of approach.
2: Absolutely. And there are also some elements in the strategy that could go either direction, they could be really, really valuable, or they could be terrifyingly bad. And I'll give you two, two specific examples. One is This leans somewhat on my background as a board director of Electronic Frontiers Australia and very much a civil libertarian. You know, one of the things in there is automated threat blocking. The concept of automated threat blocking, basically stopping threats from getting to end users is great. Mm. (laughs) Love the idea. But who's defining what a threat is? You know, who's creating that list and how do we ensure that that's not misused at some point in the future when threats are construed differently by a different government or they're construed differently by a different interest group that wants to keep certain types of information or certain types of data out of you know out of mm. out of other people out of the citizens hands. so that's one where that that could be great if we can have a you know clean pipe coming to australia so the attacks just don't get here That's fantastic. But if we're actually building the Great Firewall of China for Australia, that's less great. Uh, and that's you know that's Mm. all sorts of problematic civil liberties aspect and then the second one would be professionalization of the industry now having been in the industry as long as i have you know obviously i have a view here that anything that we can do to ensure that everyone working in the industry is qualified and knows what they're doing they have the skills they have the knowledge they have whatever experience is necessary for the task they're taking on that's a good thing you know i'm definitely in favor of professionalizing the industry. However, there are ways that you can professionalize the industry that ultimately end up being a barrier to entry. It ends up being a constraint. we already have the situation where if you want to be a security consultant or run a security consulting firm, you need certifications and accreditations from half a dozen different global organizations to provide different services. If all we're doing is adding on another one, that doesn't help us. It just makes it more expensive. Yeah. If we can cross-recognise everything, then that's fantastic. But again, it, it just depends how it's implemented. How are we going about professionalising the industry and what does that actually mean?
1: Yeah, I think that particular point ties quite closely to one of the other points in the strategy, which is about upskilling. You know, it's about increasing education, uh, increasing the flow of professionals into the industry and maintaining Australia's position of leadership. And I think that part of the problem is is not just that it's expensive to do, but also I wonder about whether the rewards and incentives are sufficient. And I think that people that, that are going to be interested in cybersecurity are going to be interested in, in either, you know, black hat or white hat or are going to actually not care and just be motivated by money or not care and be motivated by the technical challenge. I mean, I I don't really know what motivates every individual person. But what I do know is that there are a lot of competing priorities and there are a lot of competing incentives to get people to be involved in this. And and, and if we want people to invest the time and effort and money into the education and then into professional certifications, uh, the rewards have to be sufficient. And not only do they have to be sufficient, but they have to be competitive with, with the other competing priorities that might encourage people to develop those skills and become involved in this, but potentially not in the way that we want them to.
2: I, I agree. And, and I think the, the issue there is, is is really the timeframes, I think, that we're trying to, to look at to solve a lot of these problems. But people have been talking about the skills shortage or the skills crisis in cybersecurity for 10 years you know, five years, 10 years, more. It's been a, a long time and it's been an ongoing discussion. And there's a, an ongoing discussion about whether the schools crisis exists or it doesn't exist and, and all sorts of other things. I think part of the problem we have is it is very attractive and appealing for, you know, for both training providers and also training participants to believe that they can do a six-week boot camp and then be a cybersecurity professional. That's not where we have a skills shortage. And in a sense, it's the challenge that we face is the skills shortage is in people with very, very niche niche skills. Like there's a shortage of people who can do genuine forensics, who can do genuine threat analysis, who can do detailed technical work. There's a shortage of really, really good security engineers can really you know, like build or analyze uh, sort of software effectively for, for vulnerabilities. There's a shortage in people who have significant experience around OT security, so operational technology, SCADA systems, industrial control systems, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. None of those shortages can be solved quickly
1: mm.
2: because those, those shortages are as much about experience and exposure as they are formal education. Now that being said there are some there are some really good sentences in the strategy about things that they're looking to do. One was making the ASD so the signals directorate mm-hmm. available to help with training. Now How that plays out, what that actually means is unclear. But that's something that I've been suggesting and not to uh, take credit for it. But I gave a presentation at ASA, must have been a decade ago. And one of the points that I made was government needs to stop complaining about the private sector poaching. Their security professionals, government needs to actually recognize that their purpose in life is as a farm for talent that can then go out into the broader economy. So if ASD needs to hire twice as many people as they need to give them the training that only they can because of the resources and the mm. operating model they have. And then let those people go out and spread their, you know, spread their capability elsewhere, that's great. So a lot of these things are really, really positive.
1: Yeah. To back up a second what you said about timeframes and again, I guess tying in with the, the comment that you made about professionalizing the industry and adding barriers, one of the things that concerns me and in general, not just from this strategy, but but I can see it a bit in some of the things we've been talking about is that this is an area where there is an absolute undeniable need to be quick and agile and responsive and this is a broader problem with the strategy that I'll come back to because I mentioned there were two major issues and this is one of them I'll come back to that I guess one of the one of the potential risks I can see is that if we're introducing more barriers more governance more red tape essentially Mm -hmm. that puts us at risk of being too slow to understand and respond to threats as they emerge or even you before they emerge do you see that or, or is that something that I'm worrying about unnecessarily I
2: think the, the strategy has a pretty good focus on threat sharing mm. um, a, again the automated threat blocking and, and a lot of those things one of the challenges that has always existed in the industry in this area is a lack of willingness and I guess a lack of incentive to share information. Mm. So most of the information sharing networks that exist are quite small and they're basically built on trust. So the banks share threat information amongst themselves largely that's based on trust there are a number of other different similar groups as you know there's one for the universities there's uh, one for parliaments who share information between themselves but again largely that's just based on a degree of trust and reliance that that's not going to bite them in the end the concern about sharing information with government has always been do you really want to be sharing your bad news and dirty laundry with government? Do you actually trust them to do the right thing with it? So there's some good things that are you know that are included in the strategy around you know around no fault no liability information sharing which they would I believe I think they'd look at legislating some of that mm-hmm. and some other changes as well. So there are some things there that will help the speed. But I think the one point that I would make on the speed is the strategy took 15 months to put together. The last strategy was four odd years ago. Probably at least half of what is in the strategy was patently obvious that it needed to be done before the strategy process was started. So what I would say is we do need to make sure that we don't spend too long naval gazing and planning and we do need to make sure that we actually get on with doing the things rather than just strategizing them
1: yeah that's more or less what we've been mm. saying all morning so far so I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things you said so first of all this uh, the thing about information sharing that rang a bell for me about an initiative that you actually started a few years ago which is i think it was called the colony
2: yeah security colony was,
1: was, was that kind of your goal with that yeah
2: so security colony was a platform that we built when we started Hyvent and the principle with Security Colony was from having been a security consultant for a decade or more at the time we would see the same problems over and over and over again at different clients, and if you think about something like, for example, uh, the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act uh, and some of the changes that are going through there, and there's you know a need for risk management plans, and there's a, a need for other bits and pieces. There are thousands of businesses that would currently be going through a process of trying to put those documents together, trying to build that out, trying to get it all looking the right way, and they're all doing it individually. What would be significantly more efficient would be if the first company or the first couple of companies to build them out then basically shared them so that everyone else could see what it looks like. They could improve on it, share it back and basically work genuinely collaboratively mm-hmm. to try and end up with the best outcome for everyone. So the whole premise of Security Colony was we would deliver a project for one company. We would then make that output available to all of the subscribers. So a bank might pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop them a full strategy and policy suite and awareness program and everything else, but then a smaller building society or super fund that doesn't have those resources get access to the same thing for a couple of thousand dollars. So it was basically just about this idea that there are these groupings of organizations that have very, very similar problems and really they should be sharing resources to try and get some leverage and that's i guess for me that's the word that i that i don't see enough of and i don't think is contemplated enough by the strategy which is how we get more leverage for the money that is getting spent in the private sector which is significantly Mm.
1: greater than the amount that gets spent in the public sector that's interesting. So is that is that something, if you were the architect of, of this strategy and, and how the government were to be running these things, is that something that, that you would envisage them picking up and, and running? Or is this, you know, really just purely a private sector thing? And that's really, I
2: guess, the heart of why we are where we are in cybersecurity at a global level, which is where does the community interest and public interest and national interest end and Mm. private sector interest and responsibility Mm. begin and how do you get the dollars to align with that and it's a really tricky question because ultimately the model that we currently run as a capitalist society is that the profit motive largely should encourage organizations to spend as much as is responsible to maximize their profitability for the majority of organizations you know that's the economic model we have in place. So if organisations are not spending enough on cybersecurity, the only way that is economically rational is that they are feeling that they are actually going to lose less than they would be required to invest in order to solve the problem. And this is where some of the discussions around some of the potential legislative responses come in. And this is where fines around the Privacy Act come in, fines around various other pieces of legislation come in. It's about changing that economic incentive so that a company now says, oh, wow, you know, in GDPR, I could lose 4% of revenue if I have a data Mm -hmm. breach that now changes the economics of my investment. I need to put more money into cybersecurity. Yeah. So I think the sort of overarching question that we need to ask and the, the problem we need to solve is how do we make it an economic necessity for organizations to spend as much as they need to spend on cybersecurity? And you can either do that through basically penalties and fines and threats, or you can do it through incentives. So grant programs, tax incentives, you know, asset write-off, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff trying to get people to buy more electric vehicles we don't do that by having an awareness campaign around electric vehicles we just flick a switch and change the tax concession and then people buy electric (laughs) vehicles so that like we have mechanisms for addressing these it's just some of them are um, uh, costly and
1: unpleasant Yeah, interesting. You're talking about um, legislation and GDPR and penalties and that sort of thing. Because I, I, I also wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier, which is about this concept of no fault reporting. Mm. So five years ago or so, we had the uh, Notifiable Data Breaches scheme introduced into the Privacy Act. And I, I may have misunderstood this, but I'm fairly confident I didn't. I went to many talks, some of them given by the Office of the Information Commissioner, some of them given by other experts, and I really, really got the impression, and not that they put this in in the changes to the act. It's very kind of loose anyway, but but I I got the impression they were repeatedly trying to tell people, but because of course you have mandatory reporting introduced by this change to the Privacy Act and voluntary voluntary reporting as well. And I really got the impression they were trying to get people to understand that they wanted you to report breaches, not because you were you you know you were dobbing on yourself, but they wanted to help and they wanted people to understand come to us, report your breach to us, and we'll help you. We'll help you with in any way we can. Obviously, their resources are somewhat limited. But they can help you in advance by helping you plan your you know develop your response plan they can help you to some extent with cleaning up the mess afterwards is that something that you see now moving forward is you know the government want to encourage people to share this information with the government not because you know they're going to get fined and you know not because they're dubbing themselves in but because there are going to be mechanisms in place potentially from the ASD or or whoever else to help victim. In fact, you know, it explicitly says that, I guess, in the uh, the strategy Mm -hmm. is about help victims of breaches. Absolutely. And the other thing is at a macro level, yes, some breaches
2: are super, super targeted at individual organizations and there is no implied threat to other organizations around them. But the vast majority of breaches don't fall into that category. And so if, you know, if bank A is being attacked or compromised there is a very very high likelihood that banks b c d all the way through to you know zz are also going Mm. to be hit by the same attack Mm. and so being able to share that information is preventative for all of the other organizations as well as being something that you know allows the government to decide you know do we actually need to help with this is this actually a big enough incident that, that you know our resources would be of use
1: is it a national
2: threat? Yeah, is it a national threat? And you know, it is important to recognise that there are things that government agencies can do that private sector companies cannot. You know, they have resources and they have the legal ability to do things that that private sector companies can't. And so, there are a bunch of ways in which the government is better placed to respond to some of these attacks. Yeah, so encouraging that information sharing, if only so that we really know what's going on, is important. And just to tie that back to the previous point that I made, that economic assessment that companies are making about how much they're going to lose is based on the likelihood and the potential loss. At the moment, all of that data is bullshit because... It's just not captured accurately. The like you know, the it's it's through these responses to surveys that are all sort of semi-self serving by private sector companies. People are either incentivized to understate it or overstated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's based on pretty small sample sizes. So that the data that we have about what is actually happening is not yet good enough for organisations to actually make sensible decisions about how much they should be investing.
1: Mm. I want to talk about some something else that, that I see largely in Australian legislation and I, not so much in this, but but I'm getting hints of it and I want to know your thoughts. Um, to give you some examples, do you remember when the, the major Australian retailers tried to stop people buying things online from overseas? And I don't don't know if you remember what happened, but particularly led by, I I won't name them, but led Mm -hmm. by some of the Australian major retailers, (laughs) there was a big push to get extra tariffs and and, and taxes imposed on goods bought online Mm -hmm. from overseas. The approach and strategy here seemed to be rather than saying the world is changing, we need to adapt and we need to respond, saying let's try and stop the change. And you see the same thing. You saw the same thing happen with streaming services. You know, obviously the major competitors to that, or the major the major people that that was disrupting, tried to stop it. You see the same thing with recently the news bargaining code. There seems to be this attitude in Australia that there are some large companies that have made a lot of money over the decades by doing things a certain way, and now things in the rest of the world are changing, and they you know they don't want to adapt. They want to try and stop those changes coming to Australia. I didn't feel that this strategy was was leaning in that direction. Um, too much but I did catch hints of it here and there I, I thought there were some things that that struck me as almost trying to you know shut the door after the the horses bolted you know there was some hints of things like um, I guess in particular about influencing things on the global stage which is which are obviously important but there were just a few things in there that, that that felt to me like the strategy here was about influencing things and trying to stop things being a certain way rather than recognizing actually we we have no control and mm. no influence over these things and we need to learn to adapt to them
2: so that's an interesting perspective i
1: think the
2: i think there, there are sort of two or three different themes i think that that tie into that the piece around the global influence i think is partly uh, australia's wish to be on the global stage participating in you know, in, in all of the forums and, and all of the standard setting bodies and things that exist. And I think that's worthwhile. I mean, we, we have a, a, lot to, a lot to offer. I think the piece around trying to sort of shut the door after the course is bolted, I think the main aspects where we seem to be trying to control global systems or global outcomes, I guess, uh, around internet of things so there's the you know mandatory requirements around security for internet of things devices and then i think there's a a bunch of voluntary codes uh around uh, you know around labeling there's voluntary codes and um, sort of software security and working with other countries to try and agree on minimum standards of software security to require in the acquisition process for buying that software i actually think that that like the, the single biggest piece in in all of this in in all of cybersecurity ultimately is the quality of software code that is the single biggest challenge that we have and is you know the single gnarliest problem that we have because until until software stops having vulnerabilities
1: Mm. all Mm. of
2: this stuff is going to be a problem and it is very very hard to see any industry code or requirement or or anything really that's going to genuinely solve that problem it's it's hard to see that software is going to stop having vulnerabilities and significant vulnerabilities in significant numbers anytime soon because it's still the case that anyone can write software there there are things we can do but the things we could do are really unpalatable you know the things we could do are restrict who can write software And before the software can get released, it has to go through a ridiculously tight quality control process. And ultimately we've already made the decision, that that's not something we're gonna do. We want the functionality, we want our computers to be able to do everything possible. We want innovation, we want speed. The price of that, is, is the security challenge that we currently have
1: yeah realistically I mean I'm not going to say it's a good decision or it's a sensible decision but realistically it, it's the only viable decision talking about minimum standards in, in you know in terms of software quality and, and that sort of thing what about minimum standards in terms of education and training? So, and I'm talking about in the private sector. So, you know, we, we can't, well, we could, you know, but we, we're not realistic to launch some government scheme where we say everyone in Australia has to complete mandatory, you know, cybersecurity training, but we could have a raw requirement for organizations to do so. And And I'm basing this on my own experience. I was working for a hospital for, for many years, and I remember when the ransomware attacks first started getting big and we were getting hit by these probably twice a week at least on average now we were kind of fortunate in that we had things set up in a way that we could recover the, from them quickly like you know the, the things that users had access to from their machines where you know where these attack vectors would come in were, were not you know they were restricted and, and the things that they Did have access to were backed up and we can restore them and that sort of thing so we you know it was disruptive but it wasn't catastrophic and this was happening two three times a week and then we made a change and we got that down to basically zero we we got these things stopped completely and what we did was training you know we didn't we didn't implement any you know technology any firewall changes or any of that sort of thing it it was we introduced a a training program and it, it wasn't even that comprehensive it was an hour and you know and it was it was a presentation that i delivered to people and you know, any kind of IT training and presentations to people is, is boring. And, and I tried my best to make it fun and engaging. And and, and I was fortunate enough that people didn't fall asleep and, and they sat and watched it. And it seemed to be effective because, it, you know, as I said, those those ransomware attacks dropped to, to zero. At the time, I was a, a member of uh, the Australian Health Information Security Forum, which I, I don't think is around anymore. Um, and we were partnered with uh, what was at the time OzCert, and there was a lot of discussion about this. And we were talking about developing a free training module that would be available to healthcare organisations, um, where we would issue a certificate at the end of it we, that we could just give to to all of these uh, you know health organisations in Australia and say, you know, get get your users to to sit spend an hour sit through this module, get a certificate at the end. Is there not value in firstly developing? That because that, that you know after I left this group I, I've seen that 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 didn't get developed that particular training module. But is there not value in in developing something like that? But across all of industry and and you know even mandating that this is this is a compliance issue, that you have to have people educated to this minimum standard to stop these kind of things.
2: I think so. I think again, there's with all these, there's there's a couple of different aspects. I mean, I think one is at a uh, even not in an industry level at a kind of societal level, there is the need for the slip, slop, slap campaign for cybersecurity. You know, what's the other one? Click, clack, front and back, drink, drive, bloody idiot. Like it, it, we need the, the cute tagline that is going to raise awareness across the community about some of these threats at an individual company level, building out individual training materials that would help organizations effectively communicate the right message internally is definitely worthwhile. And that's the sort of thing, again, I come back to that word, leverage. If every one of these companies is going to be running the same training, let's not torch ridiculous amounts of money building it six thousand times. Let's build it once, allow the ability for people to tune the five percent they want to, but let's use the leverage to try and try and get that out there as broadly as we can. And so I think that's I think that's really important and a, a you know a good idea.
1: That's not something I saw in this strategy.
2: So it, it it might be. Again, this comes down to strategy versus implementation. You know, there are there are pieces in the strategy that could easily encompass what we're talking about, but equally, there's no guarantee that they will. So it it, it just depends on how some of them are are rolled out.
1: I mean, in particular, if I look at the small business section or the business section in general, yeah, there are certainly things in here that, that could be interpreted as something like that, but everything. Unless I'm mistaken, is is voluntary. It's it's talking about. I'm trying to find specific examples. I'm pretty sure there's nothing in here saying you know we will mandate that the workforce must have a minimum level.
2: Yeah, but say so that word "mandating" that is problematic just because of the cost from a time perspective and everything else that that introduces. You'd say, okay, so does a waiter need to go through this process? If they're not ever touching a computer and you say, well, probably not. Yeah. Okay, fine. So then it's mandatory, but there are carve outs for who it applies to and who it doesn't apply to. And then we're going to spend the next six months debating what the carve outs are, which industry it applies to all of these things get really, really messy when you actually try to roll them out at scale across, you know, across a country as big as Australia. So I think it's worth making the materials available, but again, to, to draw parallels to other areas. Almost every organization, perhaps every organization, but I'll say almost has mandatory, you know, harassment training, anti you know, anti corruption training and, and various other things. A lot of that exists. Most of them now already in that process have some form of information security training not all businesses do but certainly a lot do making sure that that material is good that it's engaging that it's available um, if organizations don't want to help themselves then we can't force organizations particularly small businesses we can't force them to have cyber security any more than we can force them to have physical security if they don't want to have locks on their doors, there's no law saying they have to have locks on their doors, but they're not going to be insurable if they don't, and they're going to have a really bad time. So it's, we need the the overall structures, the overall environment, the insurance, you know, the economics, the the information that's available, the legislative framework needs to create the environment where having locks on doors is something that you just have to have it just makes sense
1: you're probably right you know i I didn't approach it correctly by saying mandating and what you were saying earlier was was probably more effective is incentivizing so you know that there can be some kind of incentive for having people and again leverage right so you don't want to have to recreate this six thousand or a million times you know if, if if all of these companies are now including it have something public available that then you know it meets the quality standard and also you can report on it and if you report on it then you can incentivize based on it as well But it's also interesting what you're saying about insurance. You know, there's no law to say that you have to have locks. But of course, you know, your insurer is not going to insure you if you don't. And I'm seeing a lot of businesses now becoming more and more interested in cyber security insurance. In fact, one of my clients that offers something like this. And of course, you know, if you want to take out a cyber security insurance policy, you have to meet certain standards. Otherwise, they're not going to insure you or your premiums are going to be absurd. Yeah. And that's the type of structure that should
2: incentivize the behaviours that we're that we're aiming for but the question then always becomes how sophisticated are the insurance companies in terms of setting the right standards and having the right requirements themselves in terms of what they're pushing out to that set of organizations and how accurately are organizations actually responding to that, which is the classic thing of, do you have locks on doors? Yes, you then have a breach. Turns out you didn't have locks on the doors, then your insurance isn't paying out. There are a vast number of organizations that are out there who are ticking boxes saying that they have cybersecurity controls in place that they
1: simply do not have in place. And that will not go well for them. Mm. And to to what extent is that their problem? I mean, if, you know, if they have a breach, it turns out that they weren't doing what they said they did. Therefore, they don't get their insurance payout. They're They're in trouble. To what extent is, well, that's their problem versus, you know, well, the government should actually step in and say, no, that's not good enough. Same thing, I guess, with the, the standards. Are the insurance companies setting the right standards? I mean, there's the, there's likely an aspect of insurance companies seeing an opportunity here and saying, let's offer a cybersecurity policy. But again, if the, if the standards that they're requiring of their customers aren't good enough, isn't that to an extent their problem?
2: Yes, other than the fact that most of the time the insurance company has the power to decide whether or not they're going to pay out a claim. And, and I, I can pretty much promise you that In cybersecurity, having seen the forms that people fill in and the information that they submit, I can go into almost any organization post-breach and find a reason why they had misled on their application and so the insurance company can basically choose to pay or not but i'd like to take this in a slightly different direction which is there are a couple of things in the security strategy that i actually think are at the moment underappreciated and are probably the most powerful things the most powerful pieces that exist you know within the document and it's actually what i'll call structural changes to remove the problem rather than trying to fix the problem. And there are two things in there. One is uh, changes around digital ID and basically changes around how ID, uh, how uh, sort of the government ID process works in an online environment so that people can verify their ID without end companies having to hold identity documents and photocopies of passports and all that sort of thing. And the second is called, I think, data reduction or something, it's called data retention. But ultimately, what it is is minimizing data retention. So it's actually trying to say, you know, can we stop organisations from holding vast amounts of data for long periods of time? And so those
1: two things together. Yeah, I, I saw you sharing that post about data is the new uranium. As much
2: as uh, I'll try and pretend that this isn't something that I've been harping on about for uh, for a few years, it is. You know, it. The, we we went through a phase of big data where organizations started just hoarding all of the data they possibly could because they might find value in it later on, we've now come full circle and realized that it has a genuine cost. And that cost is the risk that comes with holding that data and needing to protect it. And I think if out of the strategy we actually get legislation that starts to make organizations get rid of a lot of the data that they currently hold, that actually reduces the the risk overall. And, And things like that Structural changes that actually remove the problem rather than trying to fix the problem, I think are are really important.
0: Yeah, I find that quite interesting because from two parts, I know clients of mine are really going back and stripping out the data that they don't need for a business case now and they're really making a constant effort. But from a consumer point of view, I remember going down to a couple of the local retailers and for no reason whatsoever asking me for my phone number. And when I ask them, well, why do you need that? And you push back on them and they look at you like you're causing a problem. Problem. Yeah, well, it's p- process, process, absolutely, process. and that sort of brings me to one of the main questions I've got about this strategy. And you spoke earlier about the you know, the push for internationalisation and trying to push into the international community. And obviously, as citizens online, we interact with businesses overseas, websites, businesses all over the place. Now, this strategy is very heavily focused on businesses, but there is a small section in there related to the citizens too. Do you have any insight, any comments as to, do you feel this document goes far enough to protecting citizens, or is it pushing too much towards that business protection?
2: That's actually a really interesting question. And certainly, you know, for as as long as cybersecurity has been an issue, or in fact, as long as e-commerce has been a thing, the problem that you're talking about in different guises has existed which is you know we can have all of the trade practices law and all of the controls and everything in place for businesses in australia but if you're going to buy from a business based in the US Mm. or from a business based in Kazakhstan, you know, there's no way that the government can control the security of that data, the security of that organisation, or what happens to your personal information when you you give it to them. And so, again, sort of using the the sort of data retention piece that we were just talking about, we can introduce legislation that requires Australian organisations to not require certain information and not store certain information after a point in time but we can't enforce that extra jurisdictionally on everyone else around the world and so you do end up with a a kind of two-speed threat environment which is if you buy things locally you have one set of protections if you buy things overseas you have a different set of threat environment but in a sense that's what we already have in everything else. So again, trade practices, for example, you know, if, if you buy a product in Australia, you know that you're going to be able to go back to that retail or if it's not fit for purpose or not of merchantable quality or if it, you know, if it breaks after three days, if you buy something from overseas, it's kind of good luck with that. You, you May be able to, but that, that's largely out of the goodwill and again economic intent of the supplier, rather than any sort of obligation they have under Australian law. I mean, no no one's going to turn off an international e-commerce website because they're not meeting Australian trade practices law. So you are on your own when you're um, you know when you're going out of the market
0: actually one of the things that i was looking at too there's this, a brief mention there for latest you know upcoming technologies quantum ai etc cetera, etc cetera. do you feel that this strategy can grow and evolve that ever evolving or rapidly evolving in technology environment or is it something that we're gonna to have to again revisit in the next two to three years or is that time frame going to come down because technology is just evolving so quickly now
2: i think we're all just accepting of the fact that we're going to be releasing a new strategy every two to three years and it will pick up on whatever is the the topic of the moment. I I I haven't gone back to check, but I would be pretty confident that you know AI is not really contemplated in the 2020 strategy. It's obviously now contemplated a little in the 2023 strategy. But again, that that strategy's been built over, you know, over a, a sort of 15-month period and I expect in another couple of years AI will have its own chapter because of the scale of some of the problems that's going to throw up. Things like quantum, I think we're still trying to get our head around exactly how big a threat and opportunity some of that is. I think it needs to be it needs to be there because hopefully the governments, you know, putting money into CSIRO and various other research agencies to do some of the you know, the heavy lifting to to try and understand it. But it's not an area at the moment that is going to impact on most organisations, let alone the sort of individuals.
0: Thanks, Nick. That was a great insight into Australia's 2023 to 2030 cybersecurity security strategy. Uh, it's definitely not a part of the industry that I've spent as much time as you have focusing on. And as Matt said at the very beginning, we greatly appreciate you spending your time with us today.
2: Awesome. I've enjoyed being here. I managed to get through without having a, a 9.30 a.m. beer, so um, make it to the afternoon,
0: hopefully. Okay, so that's it for this week's episode of the, dri- the Tea Driven Devs. I'm Liam Elliott. I'm Matt Goldman. And I'm Nick Ellsmore. Cheerio. 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 The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded
1: and produced on Darawal and Darkinjung land.